Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report here on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. All right. Well, if you're a first-time listener, we on the show here deal with consumer issues. And so if you have any ideas on any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you want to comment on anything that you heard on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on uh, Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, podcasts of these shows are available on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. Just search Consumer Review Report and all the episodes will appear. Okay. So, today I thought I would talk about uh, cars. Um, I don't know that much about cars, but I know Consumer Report knows a lot about cars. So, we will be uh, airing some audio from a video they posted on YouTube. Uh, And some of the subjects they're going to be discussing is the best time to buy a used car... Uh, radar versus camera-based safety sensors, and a couple other things. So this was posted by the Consumer Reports. And then, after that, I have some Consumer Report Ask the Expert questions related to cars. Um, So we'll go over those. And then also, I wanted to go over an important scam notice that's... uh, was put out this week by Penn Live. Uh, this article was written by Deb Kiner, uh, again from Penn Live. Pennsylvania lottery officials issue warning about mega million scam. So, a lottery scam that originated in Jamaica was recently reported to the Pennsylvania lottery. Uh, Lottery officials are urging Pennsylvanians to be cautious of the scam that is being perpetrated over the phone by someone with a Caribbean accent. The scammer tells the person they have won a fictitious Mega Million sweepstakes or a prize from another lottery game with a well-known name according to the Pennsylvania Lottery. The criminals encourage the victim to make a payment for taxes or other costs to facilitate the processing of their prize, but the prize is never paid. Pennsylvania Lottery Executive Director Drew Svitko said in a news release, Unfortunately, these types of scams are quite common, especially during times of crisis, such as a pandemic, when people may be vulnerable. It's important to know that the Pennsylvania Lottery will only contact players if they want a second chance drawing, a giveaway into which a player may have submitted an entry or to collect their winning story. We never call or email people at random. According to the Pennsylvania Lottery, scammers sometimes find the names of actual lottery employees using the internet, then use those names and a badge number or other made-up information. 
They will also use the names of real lotteries and lottery games, including multi-state games like Mega Millions. Many scam operators are located offshore, beyond the reach of U.S. law for enforcement. Scammers will often set up fake websites and telephone switchboards to hide their whereabouts, creating a spoofed phone number, which makes it appear on a caller ID display that a call is coming from a real entity or U.S. area code. The Pennsylvania Lottery says the following also are signs of a scam. If you are told to buy a prepaid debit card to pay an upfront processing fee or taxes, this is a major hallmark of a scam. Another one is if you are asked for personal financial information, such as bank account routing numbers. Another red flag is if you're told the supposed prize is in pounds, euros, or anything other than dollars. Another is if an email contains poor grammar or misspellings, or if a caller states they are or sounds as if they could be calling from outside the United States. Another red flag, if you are instructed to keep the news of your supposed win a secret. And last, if you are told that you can verify the prize by calling a certain number. That number may be part of the scam. Instead of calling it, look up the lottery or organization on your uh, own to find out if it's uh, real contact information. Then call and ask to speak with security. Lottery players who receive suspicious calls are asked to report them to the lottery officials. Okay, so for more information on safely playing the lottery, click here. And I guess that was the Pennsylvania Lottery uh, website. And the Federal Trade Commission has more information on fake lottery and other scams. To file a complaint or get free information, call 877-382-4357. That's 877-382-4357 to file a complaint or get free information. All right, so be aware that scam is going around. All right, so I promised you some car talk, so let's go ahead and start with the audio. That was from a video posted by Consumer Reports talking about best time to use or buy a used car. And <clears throat> radar versus camera-based safety sensors. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Before we start the show this week, we wanted to take a quick second to tell you about a new initiative we're introducing in the podcast, which is our Talking Cars donation program. For those that don't know, CR is a nonprofit, and we're able to do all of the work we do, including anonymously buying our test cars and producing this show through memberships to our website and magazine, as well as through donations. What the Talking Cars donation program will do is allow loyal Talking Cars fans to show support for the podcast, assist in supporting the costs of producing the podcast, as well as support all the work CR does to keep consumers safe. You'll be able to contribute either as a one-time donation or on a monthly basis. Even $5 a month really helps. Go to CR.org slash give talking cars to find out more in any event we'll keep delivering talking cars each and every week again go to cr.org slash give talking cars to find out more thanks for watching and enjoy the show this week we dedicate the whole episode to your questions including problems of towing hybrid vehicles behind an rv 
Which advanced braking system technology is better, radar or camera based? And have you ever been behind a car where an object's tied to the roof with just string and wondered, is there a better way? We answer this and more next on Talking Cars. Hi, and welcome to Talking Cars. I'm Jennifer Stockberger. I'm Keith Barry. And I'm Mike Monticello. So you guys have been so great about sending your video and written questions to TalkingCars at iCloud.com that we thought we'd take the opportunity with this episode to try and get to some of those questions within all questions episode. I personally, in investigating some of these questions, learned a ton. So I hope you guys did too. Um, Wait, our, you don't you don't know everything, Jen? I don't. Apparently, no. I learned a lot. I'm very excited. So, um, in some new vocabulary, we'll fill you in. But the first question is a video question, and it comes from Avi in Santa Rosa, California. Take a listen. Hi, Talking Cars, and I'm um, thinking about trading in my 2017 Audi A4 behind me, which is a great car, but I need a new, bigger car. So I was thinking about getting a one-year-old Subaru Ascent with a few thousand miles. Now, the 2020s are going out of the dealer's lots, and the 2021s are coming out of the, on the lots. When would be the best time to buy a 2020 Subaru Ascent with a few thousand miles, possibly slightly used? Would it be now, or should I wait? A little bit of time. Thank you so much. Great show. So, Mike Monticello, um, any thoughts for Avi about his transition? Sure. Yeah. I, first of all, Jen, thank you for using my full name. I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I'd actually like to talk about with Avi first is just how big of a difference it's going to be going from, you know, the his Audi A4 to a Subaru Ascent. Uh, I totally get that, you know, uh, he's gonna. He needs more space. Totally understand that. But you, he's got to understand that the uh, 2017 Audi A4. That's when the car got redesigned. It kind of started to almost out BMW. BMW in a way. You know, BMW 3 Series has long been the benchmark of that uh, compact luxury sports sedan class. Uh, this A4 has you know precise steering, nimble handling, uh, and also a pretty good ride. The Subaru Scent, while it's a really good SUV as a whole, if if he liked those driving dynamics of the A4 the Ascent's going to feel a lot different. You know, it has kind of vague steering uh, and it has a wonderful ride quality, but it also has a fair amount of roll and kind of squish through the turns. So it's not going to, it's not going to be something that you're going to really enjoy taking through turns. That's where I would, I would think about that first. Right. I think that's if, great. Great advice. If, and if we actually want to answer the question. Oh, sorry. Not... <laughs> sorry. We actually look. We did look into into the question. If you are set on the ascent, we did look at um, the idea of buying that used versus buying the new, the slightly used, and it is still a good idea. I looked in your area at ascents that were, you know, a 2020 that was a new model versus a 2020 that was used that had, uh, you know, a few thousand miles on it, and there was a, a significant savings. You know, there was at least a few thousand dollars, and even if you were financing the whole cost of the car with no money down, you're still coming out ahead buying that car with a couple of thousand miles on it. So that's that's in general good advice. With that said, the time of year to buy this thing, 
Normally, the answer is around now um, because it's the time of year when, as a friend of mine who used to sell used cars would say, the cars have a birthday. Uh, and it's not a happy birthday because it means that those cars sitting on dealer lots are suddenly going from being a year-old used car to a two-year-old used car, and that drops their drops their value a little arbitrarily. I mean, it's, it's a couple of days. But, you know, honestly, uh, the advice this year wouldn't, it, it changes minute to minute because inventory is different, production is different, um, and you know demand is 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 so up and down. So, just buy a car when you need one. Uh, it's, it's basically the advice I'm I'm giving is you know yes you might save five hundred extra dollars if you wait six weeks, but you also might end up spending an extra five hundred dollars if you wait six weeks because it's not it's not like other years. So good luck out there. Yeah, so that actually may be a benefit to buyers that they can buy them whenever they want. They don't have to wait for the birthday to come along. Yes. So great <laughs> advice both on the car and the timing. So our next question comes from Daryl in Edmonton. Before purchasing my next car, I would like to know which automatic emergency braking system works best, camera-based or radar? Specifically, which would be the most effective at avoiding wildlife at night on the highway? A uh, quick shout out to Jennifer Stockberger for being an outspoken advocate for improving headlight performance. Thank you, Daryl, very did, much. Did you just give yourself a shout out? I, I No, it came from Daryl. It was in the You message. did give yourself okay. a thumbs but up. But you read it. <laughs> and I gave myself a thumbs up. You deserve it, but yeah. <laughs> I do. And, and again, he's talking about nighttime driving. But the truth is, for Daryl, that the answer is neither is the best but both, because they both do different things. So radar is more effective at detecting metal and sometimes has a longer range, such as what they use with automatic cruise control. But camera-based systems may be better at discerning pedestrians or wildlife. But again, cameras can only see when they can see. So, you know, in poor weather, in the dark, they may not have the advantages of a radar system, for example. So. I learned a word. This was one of the vocabulary I learned in that we were in a meeting with a manufacturer of thermal cameras yesterday, and they threw out the word sensor fusion or fused systems. And if you read that, it says it's sensor fusion is the com combination of sensory data or data derived from disparate sources such that the resulting information has less uncertainty than would be possible when these sources were used individually. So many of these um, advanced safety features are fused systems. They're using data from both radar and camera to um, make the best decision in what the car should do. And that's just the beginning. We have LIDAR and infrared and these thermal cameras, all of that's coming. And I think the best result is the combination of all of those systems. Yeah, um, you, you know, they're obviously they're not perfect right now where we are with it, but you know, some right. automakers do have what they call large animal detection systems. And right. Volvo is one of those companies. I reached out to them to talk to them a little bit about their their system because I wanted to find out, you know, if we, if they we could discern which one is better than the other. And they said that uh, their system, first of all, is designed for for large animals. We're talking deer, we're talking elk, moose, things like that. Uh, and it uses um, uh, radar cameras that are operated by software that can discern between large animals, pedestrians, cyclists, and vehicles 
in most road and weather conditions because like you said jen they can't do all um they have theirs up on the high on the windshield but within the wiper sweep so that it can still see you know uh the wipers will clean the windshield when it's raining out um but they said they it can't detect all large animals in all situations for example they said it can't see partially obscured large animals it can't see large animals that run or move quickly uh, and large animals, if the background contrast of the animals is poor, warn the warning and break interventions may then be late or not occur at all. And uh, unfortunately, they also it can't detect small animals such as dogs and cats, which is a bummer. Hopefully, you know, they will get to that point. Our next question is from Robert from Española, New Mexico. My 2019 Tacoma's radio constantly reboots while using Bluetooth. I took it into Toyota and I was informed that it's an issue with the iPhone. I have looked online and, a, and it's a common issue with several Toyota models. Is this standard equipment and it's failing? Shouldn't Toyota make it right? Uh, Keith, any advice for Robert? Yeah, no, I've I've had the same problem on my car, which is which is the infamous diesel XE, which is which is finally going back to the the, the lease is ending soon. Oh no, you're le- you're losing the Jag. I know, yeah, the lease is ending. Uh. Um, but I've had the same problem on my car, and it and it developed very suddenly. Uh, and, and, and in my car, the case is that every time I would try and change the volume, it would uh, switch inputs uh, if I was using Bluetooth on my phone, and it was this sort of bizarre thing that happened all of a sudden. And, you know, not to let car manufacturers off the hook here, but there's another party at play here, and it is the cell phone manufacturer, the software developer of the cell phone software. You know, Apple and Google and phone manufacturers can make changes that these car companies can't possibly prepare for. So if it's a 2019, I know to you that's basically a brand new car. But, you know, that radio, especially in the Tacoma, was being developed years and years ago. Um, So it's very hard for a car manufacturer to anticipate a new type of software that it will have to, you know, uh, interface with years down the road. And this is going to be increasingly a problem um, with cars going forward when we have, you know, the iPhone 20 or the Galaxy uh, whatever, um, that, that our phones are, are going to outlast our, you know, outlast our cars in some ways. I did find some advice on Apple forums that showed a, a, a change that you can make on the, on your phone and involves basically uninstalling the software from your phone, reinstalling it. Uh, and it's a problem we're going to start seeing going forward, but it's, it's not an easy one to fix. Very interesting. Our next question is from Joe in Quebec. I often see cars and trucks loaded in a questionable way on the road. Many people don't seem to realize that going on the highway with a mattress tied to the roof of the car um, with twine (laughs) through the windows might not be the best idea. I get nervous following cars on the highway with their cargo flapping in the wind or wobbling around dangerously. What are your recommendations for transporting things like this? Keith, I know you did a story not too many years ago about oddly transporting Christmas trees. We were seeing a lot of that, but any advice in general outside of Christmas trees? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but seriously, this is really dangerous stuff. People get hurt and killed by things flying out of cars and, and it's really scary. Uh, and you're responsible if something comes off of your car and hits someone and, you know, you would feel terrible if just to save a few bucks on delivery, um, you know, someone got 
seriously injured or or or, or killed. Uh, so my advice is just just pay for the delivery. Get a friend with a truck. Um, I know Monty has one. He'll help you. He'll help you move. <laughs> Jen does too. Just ask, well, you know, if you're in Connecticut, we'll just, you know, ask us. We'll help you. No, uh, but I, I made that offer to you one time. It wasn't like a <laughs> lifetime offer, Keith. But, you know, but it, it's non-transferable too. But um, one of the one of the major issues is that if you are going to put something in a vehicle, uh, you're going to make sure that, you know, the wind does not take it. And that was an issue with Christmas trees because they're kind of shaped like a wedge and people would put the wrong side of the wedge going the forward <laughs> and it would, you know, it would start, you know, flapping the tree up in the, in the breeze and it would fly off the car. Um, you're going to want to make sure, especially with a mattress, that it is tied down in the front so it doesn't kind of take off like a, you know, Bernoulli's principle at work there uh, and it, you know, flies off the car. Um, you're going to want to use ratchet tie downs. And these are inexpensive. If you're buying a large item, you're probably at the kind of store that has those things anyways. Also, a lot of stores will allow you to rent a truck from them or they'll have, I know the Ikea near near where I live has zip cars, uh, big vans that you can that you can rent from them. So get the right car for the right job because uh, you could hurt someone and it's not worth saving 50 bucks. Do you ever you see someone who literally they're the passengers reaching out oh, yeah. and holding holding yeah. whatever's on top of the car. Oh yeah. Not, that's not probably that's a good a, practice. It's a scary thing to see. Scary thing. So our next question is from Rich from Chicago. Bright headlights are important to me, but I'm having trouble re- reconciling your headlight ratings, meaning CRs, with those of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, IIHS. You seem to have a subjective approach in your reviews, whereas IHS uses a more objective rating system with comprehensive testing. Cars like the Toyota RAV4 and Honda Accord are rated as good or very good by CR, but do not have top headlight ratings from the IIHS. So yes, um, Rich, our, our, our system of, of evaluating headlights is slightly different. Ours goes back to 2004, and it is subjective in that we are sitting on the car, stat, sitting on the track, sorry, statically, looking out at a series of flat black plywood signs, and really with a jury of raiders, two raiders saying, how far can I see? Which of those signs can we see? Um, both low beam, high beam, width, etc. IIHS uses a more dynamic test in that they're driving towards sensors that are on the signs, if you will, positioned at the sides of the road because they have to drive through them. And they get a measurement of when that sensor reads five lux, kind of a, a, a low threshold for being able to discern something ahead. Some of the differences, and I did delve into like the car of the RAV4, for example, the differences between our ratings. And one is they do a whole bunch of, when you say comprehensive, they do all of the iterations that come on the cars because they do go to a local dealership, borrow all of the different headlight variants, if you will, for that car. Um, So we only do the one that comes on the car we've tested, of course. So um, make sure you're comparing apples to apples in that it's the right headlight. But the differences often come from those curved ratings. They also do ratings in a curve. So ours is straight ahead. And if you look at the data for the RAV4, we're not too far apart. We say similar on the low beams and high beams. Um, Where the differences come for something like that is in the curve data. 
um, that they're seeing less illumination in curves. IIHS also does bonuses for automatic high beams. We do not apply that yet, um, though we do absolutely see advantages for automatic high beams. And they do a very significant deduction for what they see, what they deem glare potential if they think a, a light is bright enough. So yeah, Rich, there are differences. There is a link in the IHS data to look at the more technical data if you want to make some direct comparisons, but um, we do need to work a little better to resolve that. I do think both systems have worked towards better headlights overall, so there is advantages to both ours and the IHS, but um, there are differences. So just moving on, a question comes from Boaz. I've heard electric vehicles are low maintenance compared to ICE vehicles, internal combustion engine vehicles. What are the required maintenance items from the latest EVs besides the typical consumable replacements such as wipers, tires, brakes, etc.? Mike, what is the answer for Boaz? Well, so the first answer is yes. Uh, most EVs do have lower maintenance costs. Uh, than internal combustion engine vehicles because they have fewer and simpler parts and they don't require oil changes. Uh, so, but I also uh, talked to uh, John Ibbotson, CR's chief mechanic. Uh, he's in charge of our entire uh, car fleet, and which means he's also in charge of bringing, uh, getting our test vehicles to um, the dealers to have you know their their maintenance done on them uh, because if, in most cases we do we do bring them to the dealer. And so I asked him, you know, what kind of oddities he's seen, you know, with EVs and, and, you know, are they costing less in general? And here's what he said. He said, first of all, every car is different. Uh, every, you know, every maintenance schedule is going to be different. But just as an example, he said with the Kia um, Nero EV and the Hyundai, Hyundai Kona EV, you don't have to do anything until the car reaches 15,000 miles. And then it's only a, a cabin, fil cabin air filter is changed. Um, and then at 30,000 miles, same thing, cabin air filter again, and then uh, brake fluid is changed. The, the bottom line is you, you don't have to do, you know, that, that's a pretty long maintenance um, window and it's not very expensive. Uh, there are some oddities though. For instance, you're on those two cars, your uh, maintenance light will still come on at 5,000 miles because the tires need to be rotated. Then uh, John was telling me about the Audi e-tron, which is Audi's electric vehicle. He said the service light came on at 5,000 miles. Uh, he, he, uh, he, he called the dealer and said, what, what's going on? And he said, all I need to do is change the coolant in the battery. It doesn't cost anything because uh, that initial, initial service for Audi is covered. So how much is this all costing, right? And in general, it is less. John figures that the Hyundai Kona and the Kia Nero EVs, you're looking at about for the first 30,000 miles, you're out maybe $300. So in general, yes, they are cheaper, but you know, make sure you look at your owner's manual, keep up on the maintenance, because like I said, there are gonna be some, some things here and there, uh, such as you know, you know, changing the coolant for the battery, things like that, so. Yeah, interesting. Not only um, less, but different, different um, yeah, exactly. items that you have to look at. So very interesting. Right. So our next question comes from Stan. I own a 2018 Mazda CX-9 Touring. It has the technology package, which gave me all of the safety features, including low and high speed braking assistance. This week I was driving up a slight grade on a straight country road, following behind another car at about 40 miles per hour. I was several hundred feet behind the car when all of a sudden my speed fell off and a large brake warning appeared on my dash. 
There was nothing in the road and I had just washed my car the day before so the camera was clean. I drive this road every day and this has never happened before. Any ideas why this happened? Mike Monticello, you seem to have some personal um, and anecdotes maybe of, of conditions where these things can happen. Well, yeah, I have had some situations. Luckily, Jen, it's been, you know, pretty rare, but there have been several occasions where, you know, the forward collision warning uh, has popped up on the dash and kind of startled me. And there didn't seem to be anything around that, you know, would have caused it to do that. And I've even had the automatic emergency braking system, you know, kind of freak out for like a second where it, you know, hits the brakes and then just stops hitting the brakes. And it's it's happened to me in, you know, all different makes and models. It's not been specific to one automaker that is struggling with this. And I, I, one instance that I remember in particular was I was about to go underneath a freeway uh, overpass and, and it was a sunny day. And I think it was the uh, the shadow caused by the overpass. And th my guess is the car was startled by that and, and wasn't sure what was going on. So it, it, you know, it sent the forward collision warning and got kind of freaked out for a second. The thing about that is the forward collision warning is supposed to be intentionally startling, right? And so it's doing its job because if there really was a car or something in front of you that you were about to hit, uh, it, it wants to wake you up and say, hey, pay attention. The downside is when you have these false positives, it freaks the driver out for no reason. And potentially, if it does invoke the AEB system, you know, for that second or so, it, you know, could freak out the driver behind you as well. You know, these are things that, you know, they're constantly working on these. We can't always explain right now why sometimes these happen, because it seems to be no rhyme or reason why sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't, as, you know, uh, as this person found yeah. out as well. And, and I would say, I do think they are better than when they first introduced. You know, you talked about all makes and models. I think I experienced false positives far less than even a couple of years ago when AEB was newer. And I do still think the benefits outweigh these kind of growing pains of the technology. So moving on, we have a question from Stephen from Jacksonville, Florida. We hear a lot about platform sharing these days. Words like skateboard and modular architectures are increasingly common, but what does it all mean for the artistry of vehicle design? The VW groups Touareg, Q7, Cayenne look and perform very differently. So what are the common parts? Do they share crumple zones, electrical systems, A and C pillars, ground clearance? Thank you for unraveling the engineering behind the designs. Keith, Barry, anything to share for Stephen? Yeah, so I looked. I looked into this particular platform you're talking about. It's the, the MLB platform. There's another version uh, of it, uh, and that includes the Bentayga and the Urus, which are two totally different cars. But you're right; it, uh, some of them do look very similar. I think you know the Bentley Bentayga and the Q7 look really similar, and those are cars that cost a, a multiple of a difference. Uh, and that's really up to what VW wants to do in terms of of cost cutting for the for sharing parts, because the only thing that actually need to be shared. And, and, and first of all, a, a platform can kind of mean whatever a car maker wants it to. In this case, it means the positioning of the engine, um, what the drive wheels are, and that's that's basically it. So it's a longitudinal front engine, uh, front wheel drive or four wheel drive platform. The only thing that is fixed is the location of the pedals, um, the front wheels and the rake of the windshield. So that, that really is very few uh, it, 
things that are Im immovable. Otherwise, almost anything else can be changed other than, you know, the mounting of the engine, whether it's front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, that sort of thing. But it, Jen, it, this is this is a great way for car manufacturers to, to save money. And some cars that save pl share platforms don't necessarily um, look anything like each other. Right. Right. And, and I would say, you know, that that this commonization or platform is not a new concept where we hear the word skateboard and that is with the electric vehicles where you have this big battery, that's your skateboard. And the analogy I was using was, hey, you can have the same foundation of a house, for example. The house can be vastly different on top. So body styles, design, artistry, I think it doesn't matter. You can have your skateboard and still have all, all of those benefits. So great question. The next question is from Lisa. When you are installing a forward-facing convertible seat with the seat belt, it goes through the belt path just behind the padding of the child's back. When it is a normal seat belt, it lays flat and the child cannot feel it. But when it's an inflatable seat belt, it's thicker and could potentially cause a bulge behind the child's back. If an inflatable seat belt um, engages when the car crashes, wouldn't that cause danger to the child? I would think something inflating right behind the child's back would be potentially dangerous and therefore not recommended. So just for, for informational purposes, Ford came out with the inflatable seatbelts as far back as 2011 on the Explorer originally. So it is on some Ford, Lincoln, and now Mercedes vehicles where you see that inflatable belt. The difference for Lisa is that when we think of airbags, we think of this giant forceful volume of frontal airbags. The inflatable belts aren't nearly the volume that a frontal airbag would be. So yes, they inflate and they kind of unzip up the length of the seat belt um, to, to kind of spread those crash forces. And we do think they really have some potential benefits for those that are not in child restraints um, in the rear seat. And Ford shared a lot of video and testing that they had done when they introduced them back then. The volume, the forces, I don't think they would be dangerous to a child. But what I do need to say, there are still some child seat manufacturers who disallow, who say you cannot use their child restraints with inflatable belts. Pay attention to your owner's manual. Um, Obviously, rear-facing seats, not Lisa's case. You can use latch. You don't need to install with the belt. Um, but um, that's my key advice is it, it is, it is case-by-case, seat-by-seat on whether they're even allowed or not. So pay attention, Lisa. So our last question comes from Stephen, and it's a good wrap-up because it's COVID-related. Because of COVID-19, we bought a used leisure travel RV to travel safely from our home in the Southwest to the East Coast for a son's wedding and a daughter's baby. To our delight and surprise, we like the experience and look forward to more use of the RV, but want to tow a small car for short trips when we're parked. What small safe vehicle can you recommend that still offers many of the features and comfort we enjoy in our full-size luxury cars? Hybrid would be a plus. Um, so I don't think that Stephen is alone in his transition to an RV. And Mike Monticello, anything for Stephen on towing a small car? Yeah, sure. And you know how you said early on, Jen, that you know you learned a lot uh, while doing research for this show, and. I have never driven an RV, and I've definitely never towed a vehicle uh, behind an RV. So I learned some stuff, too. Um, and I talked to John Ibbotson, who's who's um, always my go-to about these things, and it always surprises me. The guy seems to know everything. It's it's In a way, it's kind of annoying. 
But um, in this case, it's very helpful for the consumers. And so the first answer to the first question is Ford Escape Hybrid. And what's interesting about that is the non-hybrid escapes actually can't be flat-toed, uh, but the Escape Hybrid can. Uh, a couple things about flat-towing, or it could also be called four-down-towing, uh, which means basically using a tow bar, hook it up to the, the vehicle behind you, uh, and um, you're going to have all four tires on the ground. Because of that, there are some restrictions to which vehicles can. It's also called yes, dinghy towing. That was the and word the reason I why learned. it's called that, yeah. yeah, it's called that because it resembles a yacht, uh, which I'm sure Keith has. He seems like someone being into yacht rock. Um, Only no. the music. And, <laughs> and uh, so it'd be, it, it's, it looks like a yacht towing a dinghy behind, behind you. So, a couple things. Usually, John was telling me the hang up is that you know uh, it has to do with the transmission basically or the drivetrain like a lot of all-wheel drive vehicles can't be towed can't be you know four down towed unless the all-wheel drive system can be disabled it he says it's almost always drivetrain related when they can't always check your owner's manual and or the dealer basically talk to the dealer before if you're thinking about which car to buy talk to the dealer beforehand you can look a lot of this stuff up online a lot of people use front wheel drive cars uh, because even with automatics, you can put them in neutral. A couple other things is that, so, you know, kind of in older times, it would usually, a typical vehicle would be like a rear-wheel drive vehicle uh, with a manual transmission or a four-wheel drive vehicle with a manual transfer case that can be placed in neutral. And that's one of the reasons why the Jeep Wrangler is like usually the go-to um, vehicle to tow behind an RV because, you know, it's pretty small because that's the other thing is you don't want like to tow, you can tow a Tahoe or something big like that, but you don't want to, you really want to tow a smaller vehicle. And that's why a lot of people go with the Wrangler. It, it's, you know, for what they're looking for, I don't think it's going to suit no. the purpose. They're going to, the escape hybrid much better because the, the Wrangler is great for people who want to do some off-roading and exploring when they get to their campsite or whatever, but it's not going to be what these people are looking for. So in this case, I'd say go with the escape hybrid uh, because, it, and, and like I said, the cool thing is the hybrid can be flat-towed. The regular escape cannot. And there were definitely restrictions about four-wheel towing versus tipping up like for front-wheel drive and using what they call dolly towing. Yeah, I learned a ton. So that is it for this episode. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Mike. I learned a ton. Now you know what sensor fusion and dinghy towing are. Um, so uh, I learned a ton. I hope you listening and watching did too. Always keep the questions coming. Talkingcars at iCloud.com. Any additional information, see the show notes. And we'll see you next time. All right, so that was some information that was pretty interesting. I mean, sometimes, you know, you don't think to ask those types of questions. So I always love when they come out with those kind of shows where it's just different questions and, you know, you get to learn a little bit. And also I have here a compilation of car questions from past issues of the Consumer Report magazine. Uh, so why don't we start with this one? I love the idea of an electric car, but are there options outside of a Tesla or the Chevy Bolt? And they answer, Tesla might be the brand most associated with electric vehicles, EVs, and CR recommends the affordable Chevrolet Bolt for its long range, 250 miles and quiet interior. 
But there are other choices that you may not have heard of as much about, and even more EVs are on the way. At the high end, ranging from $44,000 to $85,000, uh, new models focus on luxury, sporty driving, and quick acceleration. So there's the Jaguar I-Pace, the Audi e-tron, the BMW i3, and the Porsche Taycan, I think that's how you say it, and Mercedes-Benz EQC. Uh, they go on to say there are more affordable choices too. Nissan uh, has a longer range version of the Leaf called the Leaf Plus, which Nissan says should be able to get 226 miles on a single charge. Uh, there's also the Hyundai Kona EV, the Kia Nero EV, and the Kia Soul EV, all promise ranges longer than 230 miles. Uh, I guess they're expected to offer versions under $40,000 before any incentives. So they go on to say you may also want to consider plug-in hybrids like the Toyota Prius Prime. These can run on battery power for short distances, but still have a gas engine for longer trips. They are a good choice if you're anxious about running out of juice in an EV. And I'm still curious about how you do fill out, uh, fill up. I mean, once you go the 230 miles, uh, where where do you go? I mean, do they have specific? Uh, I don't want to say gas stations, but electric stations to be able to pull over and recharge. And how long does that take? So, I guess they wouldn't. You wouldn't take this on a long trip? Is that what they're saying? That's why they're saying to go ahead and get a plug-in hybrid? Um, yeah, because I don't see too many of these stations around. Uh, so I don't know how you would do that. But I guess they're good running around town cars. Alright, so the next question is, How critical is it that I rotate my tires regularly? Now, probably your normal you know, a uh, car owner might know the answer to this question, but um, some people, maybe like myself, that <laughs> won't know, and it would be interesting to find the answer. So here's how they answer. This common maintenance task, which should typically be done every 5,000 to 8,000 miles, isn't one you should ignore. It may seem minor, but remember, tires are the only thing that comes between your two-ton vehicle and the road. Well-maintained tires will help you travel safely for tens of thousands of miles. Without rotation, tires may not wear evenly. Front tires play a larger role in braking, and on front-wheel drive vehicles, they must claw for traction, which means they wear out more quickly. Plus, minute variations in suspension and alignment can introduce uneven wear patterns. All of this can impact your car's ride and noise level, as well as the tire's longevity. Uh, spreading wear around all four tires ensures even tread depth and grip, says Chris Jones, a certified mechanic and tire technician for CR. A visit to the mechanic is also an opportunity for a pro to inspect your tires for damage and proper inflation. Your owner's manuals will have guidance on the rotation pattern. Some are front to rear, others side to side, and frequency. 
Tire rotation can cost up to $60, but shop around. Some retailers may provide the service free of charge. Wow, I didn't even know there was a specific rotation pattern and that it was specific for your car. Hmm, see, you learn something new every day. So I guess, um, I don't know, I mean, do technicians know that off the bat, like what your car, or do they have to go into the owner's manual and say, oh, I need to rotate it from side to side as opposed to front to rear. So that's pretty interesting. All right, next question. Why does my car's engine coolant light illuminate on cold winter mornings? If your coolant light glows blue when you start your car, it's a warning that the engine isn't up to its optimal running temperature. So don't push the engine hard. If you do that when it's cold, it can reduce your engine's longevity. If a yellow coolant light pops on in the winter, it's probably because your coolant level is low. Coolant contract contracts in colder temperatures, so even if the car's coolant level has fallen only a bit below normal, it could still trigger the symptoms or system's sensor, says John Ibbotson, CR's chief mechanic. Add coolant to the reservoir until the fluid reaches the max cold or full cold line. Do this when the engine is cold, turned off for at least three hours. A red coolant temperature warning light in winter, more typically seen in warmer months, can be critical because it means the car is overheating. This is a serious problem and the engine should be shut off immediately, Ibbotson says. Have the car towed to a mechanic. Also, never unscrew the cooling system's fill cap when the engine is hot. Hot coolant can erupt and cause serious burns. All right, next question. And this is, uh, by the way, all coming from Consumer Report magazines, past issues. We did, a, I did a little bit of a, a compiling of these questions from all, all past issues. So, uh, and I categorized them under car questions. So here we go. Here's another question. From Ask the Expert section of the Consumer Report magazine, I don't fill my gas tank until it falls below a quarter of a tank. Is that bad? Some drivers fill up often because they worry about debris and rust from the bottom of the fuel tank getting into the engine, which could cause sediment to be sucked into the fuel injectors. Though that was once a concern with steel fuel tanks and the vast majority of today's cars have plastic fuel tanks that don't rust or break down as quickly, says John Ibbotson, chief mechanic for CR. Plus, the fuel pump pulls gas into the engine from the bottom of the tank. So if debris were a problem, it would surface long before the fuel level gets low. And though it's true that over time, gas left in your tank loses octane and creates residue, it won't be a problem if you use your car regularly and buy top-tier gas, which causes less buildup. Even so, don't habitually run on fumes, which can wear down your fuel pump. And even if you're a gas tank half-full kind of driver, don't top off after the nozzle clicks off at the gas station. Doing so can damage your car's vapor recovery system. Besides, most cars give you a generous buffer of 40 to 50 miles at a moderate speed before you're truly out of gas. Well, that's interesting to know. <laughs> I mean, is it 40 or 50 miles after the light comes on or just 40 or 50 miles when you see it on E? 
I, I would like to know if that if that's 40 to 50 miles after you see the light come on. So, <laughs> who knows? All right. Next question. Should I use a tire shine gloss when cleaning my wheels? Over time, it's normal for tires to begin to dull in appearance. Tire shine products called tire dressing or protectant are meant to remedy this dullness and can achieve a soft satin look or a shiny wet appearance depending on the product. Car care companies may also claim that some shine products protect tires from harmful ultraviolet light and air pollution. While we don't test these products, the clear consensus from tire manufacturers we asked, which was Bridgestone, Continental, and Michelin, was that you don't need any aftermarket products to preserve tires, which are already formulated to resist UV light and ozone. In fact, tires have protective weathering agents that might be adversely affected by using a gloss product. You won't get the high shine look of using a chemical, but cleaning with plain old soap and water is better for your tires in the long run. Oh, wow. That is interesting. I didn't know. I mean, everybody wants their tires, but I mean, I know they want them to look great. So that's why they use the tire shine gloss. But I didn't know that they also thought that when they use it, it has some kind of protectant on it. So I did not know that. But they're saying, hey, it could take it away. So just wash it with plain old soap and water should be all right. Here is, I think, the last question. Uh, I saw a sign for a walnut blasting service at my auto shop. Which cars need that? (laughs) I gotta say, I was puzzled when I saw that question. I'm like, I've never seen a sign for walnut blasting, and I don't even know what that is. Uh, so let's, let's see how CR answered that question. The process of walnut blasting, which entails cleaning the intake manifold and value, or valves of a car engine with a high-pressure air blast of finely crushed walnut shells, a bi- biodegradable abrasive, is meant to help clear out carbon buildup on older gasoline direct injection engines, or GDI, thus helping your car run better. Oh, GDI engines are designed to improve fuel economy by injecting fuel directly into the combustion chamber, but this configuration can cause the intake valves to get dirtier with build-up carbon deposits. Formed when trace amounts of engine oil seep past valve seals, as part of normal engine operation and then bake onto the valves. So over time, these deposits can cause hesitation, poor drivability, or a check engine light, says John Ibbotson, CR's chief mechanic. The walnut method may be best known to owners of BMWs. That manufacturer offered it as a solution for certain models with GDI engines between 2006 and 2016. Though GDI engines made around the same time period uh, from other brands such as Audi and Volkswagen may benefit as well. The process can be pricey. Uh, One shop we spoke to said it would cost around $1,000. 
Ask your shop whether a chemical intake cleaning, which can cost less, could work instead. So I'll tell you what. You learn something new every day. Walnut blasting, huh? And it's a biodegradable way of cleaning your engine. But I don't know if anybody has those types of engines anymore. I know they were saying, what, uh, engines between 2006 and 2016. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I don't think that they make those kind of engines anymore. So, but if you have an older model, then this maybe could come in handy. All right, so that's it for our car questions <clears throat> and so if you have any um, suggestions on any products or services that you uh, want to hear on the show you can go ahead and email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Uh, also, I post my recent recalls from recentrecalls.gov. Uh, Actually, it's recalls.gov slash recent. I do post those on my Facebook page, and that's at Consumer Review Report. So anytime there's a recall going on about medicine, uh, products, you know, ordinary consumer products, medicine, food. I post those on there on the Facebook page at Consumer Review Report. But also, you can also view that list at uh, recalls.gov slash recent. And I also uh, post the latest scams um, whenever uh, Federal Trade Commission or the BBB post something on their website as far as scams go I try to also post that on my Facebook page at Consumer Review Report so that everybody is educated on you know not getting scammed and keeping your money in your pocket right so that's our goal and so if you uh, think that you might have been scammed or you think somebody called you and was trying to scam you you can go to my Facebook page at Consumer Review Report and see, you know, does this scam exist? Also, if you don't want to go there, you can go to the Better Business Bureau. They have uh, scam alerts. And the Federal Trade Commission also has their uh, scam alerts as well. All right. So if anybody has any comments on what you just heard on the show today, you can also email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. So this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc. Heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. I also have podcasts posted of these shows. They're available on wmck.fm slash CRR, iTunes, Google, iHeart, Spotify, and Spreaker. So if you miss these shows on the regularly scheduled Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m., 
You can also go to the podcast and all those sites have the all the episodes of this show. So I'm Diane Rebecca wishing everyone a safe and good week.